This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Justin Beals, co-founder and CEO of StrikeGraph. Every company is concerned with their revenue. <laughs> so. True, I think that's right. And we didn't want to be a security company. We wanted to be a revenue company. You know, our goal was to say, close deals faster with more confidence. And if we can shorten your time to close by 50 to 75%, you can imagine the amount of efficiency that an organization gets, you know, in revenue acquisition quarter over quarter. There are startups that I've worked at that that simple change would have saved us. We would have been a market leader. This is Justin. He's a serial entrepreneur with expertise in AI, cybersecurity, and governance. He organizes strategic innovations at the crossroads of cybersecurity and compliance and focuses on helping customers get outsized value. In every startup he started, he focused on setting a foundational culture of employee growth. Based in Seattle, he previously served as the CTO of Nextstep and Coru, which won in 2018 the most impactful startup award from Wharton People Analytics. Justin is a board member from the ADA Developers Academy, Valid8 Financial, and Edify Software Consulting. He's also an author and the creator of the training, tracking, and placement system, US Patent. He's passionate about making Ukraine cybersecurity standards plain and simple to achieve. And that drove him to co-found StrikeGraph in February 2020, which he now leads as the CEO. StrikeGraph is on a mission to enable its customers to earn revenue faster by completing security audits successfully and quickly. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Justin to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the security audit services market. Justin shares his lessons learned, how he found a sizable market that StrikeGraph can dominate by developing a product that creates a shift in value by aiming to be different, not just better. His story about articulating what business he's really in and how he measures progress is a textbook example about how to create a company that's resilient no matter what crisis they'll find on its path. By listening to his podcast, you will learn four things. 
Firstly, that you can create instant differentiation if you ensure the design of your solution amplifies the uniqueness of your ideal customer. Why your mission should be about two things, immediate and apparent value for your customers. Thirdly, that a good exercise to repeat regularly is to start to look at what scales exponentially and what scales linearly. And fourthly, why crystallizing what business you're really in can mean the difference between failing and becoming the market leader. Well, hi, Justin. Thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Pleasure's all mine, Tan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me to have you on as well. When I read about your profile and people approached me about introducing you, yeah, there's a couple of things that struck me and that's why I said, okay, let's do this because I think it fits with the purpose of the podcast in a really good way. Before we start talking about your company, Strygraph, a little bit about you. If you would describe yourself as an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, what are the words that would come up to characterize you? I would call myself a very pragmatic entrepreneur, actually. I kind of believe in the hard work of building a company and building a great product and making that valuable to your customers. I'm probably the antithesis of the raise a lot of capital, don't quite know what we're going to do with it entrepreneur. And some of that probably comes from my background. I didn't have access to capital when I was initially interested in developing businesses. And so we had to bootstrap it. And so you had to be very pragmatic about what you were developing. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you told me that you've been in a, in a range of startups across your entire career. And yeah, I mean, that's going to be a very interesting part of the discussion that I want to touch upon a little later. Good. Good. I'll let you lead us there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I mean, value driven. That's, that's typically what I look into when I interview people, like the ones that yeah, are about well, solving a meaningful problem and helping customers make a difference. And if you do that well, then yeah, things will come your way in, in ways you cannot even forecast it, if you ask me. It's what I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. It's like with that principle in mind. So, yeah, I mean, you started a number of companies. Some succeeded, some failed. So a lot of the things to digest there in terms of like, what would you do different? But this particular one, you started it in February 2020. What was the problem that you saw that was screaming for a solution? Yeah. So I experienced this problem myself. I was a chief technology officer at an AI company in the Seattle, Washington area. And we had a product that would predict the likelihood a job applicant would be a high performer. And the types of customers that were really interested in using it were people like a Deutsche Bank or a large national law firm, someone that was hiring a lot of junior talent, highly educated, and they do it in whole swaths of people, thousands, you know, every year is who they'd have to add. And they were struggling actually to identify who was going to be successful just through recruiters in a qualitative interviewing process. Mm -hmm. To make our product work, we had to ingest a lot of employee data, very sensitive data, to build the models, to make the predictions and test the accuracy of those models. And rightly so, what I found is that and my sales team would come back to me as the CTO and say, hey, I got a verbal on this deal. They want to buy it, but we got to put us through security procurement review. And the very uh -huh. first thing that procurement would ask is they'd say, do you have a SOC 2 audit or ISO 27001 certification? And uh -huh. we were an early stage startup. We had only built the product like six to eight months beforehand. And I had never heard of that request before. 
And what we found is that we were spending nine months to 18 months sometimes in the case of Goldman Sachs, essentially going through a deep security review with their procurement team. And it was the biggest issue we had in adding revenue to our balance sheet. And that's a killer for a startup. And so I got really interested in the problem space because I, as a CTO, felt wholly unprepared to solve the problem for my company. And when I talked to my colleagues in other tech companies, they were dealing with the same exact problem, big and small, no matter what the industry, there was this real concern. And so that's how I first encountered the problem. And it started actually with a little fake press release that I wrote where I said, if I were going to solve, you know, if we were launching today, how would I be talking about my solution? And that little fake press release, I kind of used to talk with some colleagues at some incubators and say, hey, I think there's something to be built here, a company to be built here. That's how I really both noticed the problem and tried to find a way to market the idea on some level. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I actually got someone in my CEO mastermind that recently had to yeah, deal with the same type of issue. And it incredibly slows down the sales process when you think you got it and then, then comes. <laughs> yeah. The reason that buyers are so sensitive about yeah. sharing this data is that 70% of data breaches are coming from third parties. So okay. if there's one lever that, you know, I don't disagree with the CISO or the chief, you know, the chief of operations or whoever's managing procurement saying, hey, if there's one thing we can do to reduce the likelihood that we're going to experience a data breach, it's actually asking all of our vendors that we share data with to meet some level of security practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So that's where this thing started. February 2020, I could see on LinkedIn, that's where, yeah, it became all official. That's um, right. And of course, we're now yeah, a good two years down the road. What will be the opportunity if you get this right? Oh. Uh, it's, I mean, if the world starts to kind of embrace your solution. Well, the landscape is massive. And I had no idea, in truth, once we started really researching the problem space, one of the first things we want to find out is what's the total addressable market? You know, what's the opportunity? And that's important to an investor to understand if I invest money into this company, what is the landscape opportunity for them? And so what I was shocked to find out is that in 2019, there were over $200 billion globally spent on audit and audit services. So I thought, okay, well, a bunch of that has got to be financial and not security, right? Well, half of that is going to non-financial audits and audit services. So $100 billion was being spent in 2019 globally on non-financial audits and audit services. So the marketplace is ginormous. I was absolutely floored at how big it was. And the other thing we learned is that it's been growing at a 15% CAGR year-over-year growth for the past decade. And so I recently looked back at what it was looking like in 2021, and it's $226 billion in 2021. That's how much it's grown again. And that, of course, you know, we want to take advantage of that tailwind growth as a business. And then we want to participate in a market that's big enough to have a really outsized opportunity. 
And so I think that one of the things I've learned through my failures over the years of doing startups is that having a really huge marketplace to operate in gives you a lot of opportunity to find the most valuable solution to present to the market. Tell me a little bit about it, because I mean, I got a big opinion about total decimal market as well, where I typically see, and I give you my version of it, that it's that companies, whether they're pushed by investors or not, typically try to find the biggest possible total addressable market. Just with the sure. hope, if we get 1% of it, we're rich. And then the question at the end is like, but why would they buy from you? And there's nothing behind that. Right. I think this is more like, hey, we want to build our house on bedrock, not sand. You know, So exactly. it's not going to guarantee a win. And I think that too often we diminish all the characteristics of a great business that make it a quote unquote winner in a marketplace. And so identifying the TAM for me was about telling the right opportunity story, not why we're going to be a winner. Because there are companies in this space already. There have been companies in governance, risk, and compliance for quite a while. And I would say 80 to 90% of that 100 billion spent is spent on services businesses like auditors and consultants themselves. And so there is some solution to the marketplace. Also, you know, in a big TAM, people are already spending money on it in some way. Now that's good, but you've got to build a better product, a more valuable solution in the marketplace if you're going to compete against what's there already. Exactly. Yeah. So what we saw was one is that while it's a big TAM number, one of the things we did find out is that only a small percentage of that number, maybe five to 15 billion are spent on software year over year. But to me, that was a signal that there's a clamor from especially medium-sized high-growth tech companies to solve this problem that don't fit into the existing software solutions. And if we could build a better software solution that we could take them off a services business into something that they can manage. And so that was our thesis in the very beginning. And actually, it continues to be our thesis today that really what StrikeGraph is doing is automating a services industry, something that's been a services industry for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that brings me to the next section almost. You decide, then it's about, like, and I really like your point about that. It's like you got a really big addressable market and that gives you the opportunity to find the most valuable problem to solve. How did it go about? What did you start on? Yeah. So I'm a software developer by trade. That's where I started when I was in grade school. And for many of the businesses that I've helped found, I've played the role or startups that I've been engaged with. I've been a CEO a couple of times prior, but mostly I've been a chief technology officer or VP of product. So this is something that definitely I have some background in. And the first thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of understand the life cycle that a company goes through as they go want to get through a SOC 2 audit or ISO 27001 certification. And I firmly believe in doing my homework. So I got the textbooks on audits and assurances, and I read the standard for SOC 2 and the assessment requirements that go along with it, and similarly for ISO 27001. And that gave me an initial good insight into what's happening. The thing that I like to start with is we're developing a product is I really think a lot of it is based upon the information model that you're dealing with. 
And if you have a good core information model, you can build features around that information model that allow everyone to engage it effectively. And one of the things that I realized is that there were a couple of things that just seemed to be true. The first thing that seemed to be true is every company is unique and their security posture is unique. And the standards are designed to support that uniqueness. So the standard doesn't require you to do certain things. It requires you to show the things you are doing that meet the rubric or the test. So for example, in SOC 2, it may say, are you protecting data? But it won't say you have to encrypt data at rest. That's a choice you need to make as a company. And that really rang true for me as a CTO, because one of the things that I really hated was this concept of security theater, where we're like doing things to make it look like we're being secure, but it's not actually, you know, providing the website. I love that quote. (laughs) So no more busy work or security theater. (laughs) That hypocrisy is a real challenge for me. Let me just make a small interruption here. Justin just made an excellent remark about the approach they took to create a shift in value. Not by creating a solution that meets all the security standards, but to create one that supports the uniqueness of their customer. Just think about it. It's a small difference at the service, but a huge difference from a value perspective. And it's a trait remarkable software companies master. They master the art of curiosity, then focus on the essence, and then create something that by design turns customers into fans. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. So just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. And so the first question in my information model was, how do I help someone that knows their business really well translate that into the security that matters for their business? And Lo and behold, the industry had had an answer for it for a while. It was in a risk assessment. That's a really easy way to say, hey, here's a typical risk. Is this a risk for me? And if that risk is for me, what am I doing to mitigate that risk? So for instance, if I carry sensitive data, one of the things I might do to mitigate that risk is encrypt the data in the database. Now, those activities and habits have a particular term and they're called a control. And I, of course, as a product developer, thought control to me is a lot like a user story when we design product. I was like, oh, these are great. We can write these short one to three sentence descriptions of the security habits, the controls that a company is going to do. And based upon that risk assessment, we'll know which ones mitigate which risks. And so when a customer needs to go and figure out what is my security posture, they take that risk assessment, depending on the risk they're able to identify the control activity. Now, you want to validate that a control was operated effectively, right? Like, it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to encrypt data at rest. It's another thing to prove that you're actually doing it on a regular basis. Uh And so this is evidence. That's what we call it. And so the next step after you identify a control is you have to say, hey, what evidence should we collect to validate that that control got operated? And this is the core of our information model. Risks are mitigated by controls, which are validated by evidence. And when we had a pilot software, a prototype that brought these three concepts together in a nice ontology where we understood the relationships, what we found is that our customers could design their security posture and get into audit 
without a whole lot of consulting. Yeah. How and much does that really kind of least... take off the nine months? So what we saw is typically nine months to get through a SOC 2. And we, we took it down to 30 days with our very first pilot customer. Okay, that's a, that's a good start. <laughs> it was a dramatic change. You know? And you know the, the horrible old adage about you know, lawyers charged by the word. And similarly, oh. you know, consultants charge by the art of what they do. And that's not what we do. We're, our customers, nor us, nor the buyers are not interested in the art of audit. What they are really interested in, making sure you're meeting a bar, you know, a set of requirements. And that is what they're looking for. Yeah. For a software vendor to kind of embrace this, you know, this is going to be valuable at every single customer in, in a particular space that you meet that is requiring right. this. It's constant. And very often we don't pay attention to this because it's not part of the solution. It's just, okay, we take it as for granted. Okay, we have to go through this. One of the people that I interviewed on my podcast earlier on was Jeff Jonas, CEO of a company called Sensing. And I recently interviewed him again for my second book about well, the resilience in times of adversity. And yeah. He said, I had a fantastic solution. It was always about cost, bringing costs down in companies. So the right message in a downturn, the fact was, it always required a six months or longer POC. Yeah. And, and that became the show, the showstopper. And that, well, that whole conversation was also about that, investing in that, addressing that, so you can bring it down. He brought it down from six months to six hours. You know? that, and that's, that's possible why- with technology. That's what technology does, right? You know, it, exactly. it, it really allows us to cut through, take complex data and kind of hone it so the right person gets the right information at the right time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah true. Sometimes you just look at things and you just you don't see the problem because you're too close to, well, like see the wood before the tree. It definitely took me about four months to get the information model down, you know, and I could not get the puzzle pieces to fit for quite a while. I kept reading standards and looking at controls and talking to people, but I think you just immerse yourself in it for a while. And that's the problem because you think, okay, we need to put this process that is manual consultant work. We need to put it into an, an automated fashion where the best thing at the end is to go to the very end. What is the outcome that we're looking for? Yes. What if we didn't have we didn't what if we didn't have to do all of that in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And we certainly start with that premise. Our customers are interested in buying Strikecraft's solution because we get them the trust assets they need to unlock revenue. And that has been a truism for us since that early fake press release that I wrote. Why are you buying this? You're buying it because you want to unlock revenue because your competitors or your customers are requiring you to represent a security posture that gives them the trust to share data with you. And people think it's the control and it's the risk mitigation and it's something completely different that they're buying. And that, That's not it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I see it all the time. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So yeah, well, in that process that you, you said it took four months to uncover like what was the information model about, that might've been hard not to crack. What has been a decision that you took from that moment onward that appeared to be really important in terms of where you are today? I think one of the decisions that we took from that early work is that dealing with the auditor is difficult. And we weren't going to be able to just abandon our customers to our software. You know, just because you write a SaaS piece of software doesn't take away some of the complexity of achieving your goals as a customer. And I've actually seen this in a couple of adoptions we've made where we've 
made the adoption of a complex piece of software, but it's been very hard to get it fully implemented because of the complexity of it. And so we decided to staff our customer success team with ex-auditors and people that are very smart about the particular space. And the reason is, is I think you need a little bit of an advocate when you're dealing with the auditor on the other side. Someone that understands the nuance of the standard and understands what was written as opposed to what is desired and can really say, hey, you're creating requirements that are unnecessary and not a part of the standard and really push back a little bit. Now, we started that out as something that felt very high touch because we didn't necessarily have a technology tool to deliver it. But over time, what we've gotten very smart about is how do we make that a feature in the product where this is a particular pain point that we hear over and over or create a nice content library? For instance, one of the challenges is that you have to write a certain number of policies that you need to share that are a narrative about what you expect to do at the organization and share with your employees. And so we started out helping write policies by hand, but now where we've wound up is a complete policy template library inside the platform that a customer can just pull from. And so I do think that that is really important to never stop innovating. I have seen so many, even of our direct competitors that have gotten their, you know, version 1.1 out the door. And I haven't seen another feature added to the system since then. And we have a high motion of constant new innovation on our platform. And that's, I think, the way I work and the team I've tried to assemble want to work. We take great joy and pride in doing that and constantly being a great listener is just the beginning when we launched the product. We were not off to go market. We were off to refine and continue to improve our solution. Yeah, you're touching upon a couple of words that trigger me again, like be a great listener. That is so important. So yeah. important. It's hard because um, you need a vision, you, but yeah. at the same time, you need, to, you need to create a good feedback loop where you're constantly you know, holding what you know to be true, like these trust assets matter to our customer, but then feeding in the new inputs that you're getting and adjust how you're going to get there. And so it's hard. You have to have both motions. I understand both a vision and an ego and a drive to go do it and the ability to let that go a little bit and listen carefully. You know, At the end, there's only one side that needs to buy it. And that's not you, it's the other side. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but the vision at the end is the North Star, the hypothesis about the change that you want to create and then how you do that and how you go about it. That is to figure out. And look, let go of your decisions all the time. Like be willing to say, yeah, maybe you're right. We should try it. How do we test it? You know, what do we look at to see if this is correct? I think that the other term I like for this is the beginner's mind term. How do we bring a little bit of beginner's mind to our work that we do so that we can be open to new learnings? Yeah. Yeah. It's super hard. Have you found any way to kind of keep that top of mind? Because you become such an expert so easily. Yeah, I think there are certainly areas where I no longer need to be a beginner. You know, hey, we figured that part out. I think we can put it to bed a little bit. We might not have solved it, but we definitely understand the vision that we're going after or the what our customers want to buy when they think about what the solution is. But I also, I did this a lot as I was developing the ability to implement AI product. 
I didn't know a lot about data science. I was a software developer and engineer, but I did understand the concepts that we were working on. And so I was pretty terrified that we would build AI product that negatively impacted human beings. For example, at a prior company where we were recommending the likelihood that an applicant would be a high performer, one of the things I was terrified of is losing someone's application. And so that is part of that beginner's mind, right? I see a huge terrifying challenge here that we could have an outage and 300 people that applied for a job could not get it. That scares me. And so we talked as an engineering team in a beginner's mind way, how do we ensure this deep resiliency in this data? Because we don't want to be the people that did that. We have pride in our work. And so- To me, that is a nice example of how letting go of the ego, realizing how scary and dangerous a space you're operating in could be by being imaginative and creative, allowed us to open up our thought process to solutions that needed to be in place. Yeah. Nice. Nice example, by the way. This is not only about like, what's the upside, but also like, what could go wrong and how can we mitigate it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of disasters, you know. Oh yeah. To, well, I mean, to take some lessons from. <laughs> of course. Well, there's like literally the next question here on my list. Like, I mean, has there been a moment where you got stuck? And yeah, what was one that that was really fundamental to get right? Yeah, StrikeGraph has gone really well. There is one place where we got stuck actually that I can talk about a little bit. So. When we first started out, one of the things that we thought would be very powerful is if we went and automated the collection of evidence via API. So let's say you need to pull some logging information from your cloud provider to prove that you're monitoring your servers, right? It was an easy thing for me as a CTO to think, hey, we should just go in and collect that automatically. And we saw competitors starting to build these really tiny point solutions where they're like, okay, we'll build one integration that will go collect this one piece of data for this one piece of control, this one security habit. And I kept watching it as a CTO going, putting it on my CTO hat saying, that's very brittle. Like, what if that control doesn't matter to me? What if that's not the way we organize the data? And then we started talking to IP SaaS companies, these platforms that essentially allow you to integrate with them and then integrate with a whole bunch of other systems. And I was interviewing CEOs of these IP SaaS companies, and they were telling me how much it costs them to maintain these integrations. And we all of a sudden felt really stuck. We were like, this does not seem like a good long-term solution. We don't think we'll hit our gross margin. It seems very brittle and that only a few people will be able to use any one integration that we write. And it just doesn't seem like a real solution, but it was a big thing on the marketing front. A lot of people were marketing and saying, hey, we have all these logos. But for any one logo, they only have one piece of data they're getting from that logo. So while you say AWS, there's not a lot of information in here. Yeah. So we were stuck. And we talked as a team, I mean, kudos to my VP of product, Micah Spieler, and our chief technology officer, Dr. Sally Moore. We as a team were like, hey, this really feels like the market is pushing us to do something by the way people are selling, but is not an actual value you know, to the customers at the end of the day. And I came back to the team with a little bit of a metaphor, and I'm known for doing it. It's probably horrible. It sounds like a typical CEO. I said, look, 
I don't want to lay down copper wire to every house so they can have a telephone. I want to build a mobile tower in each village so that anybody can connect to it. And so then we started saying, how do we build one integration that unlocks a lot of data? And where do people need to do that? And that's where we stumbled on a much more powerful integration methodology than our competitors from a technology perspective. We said, hey, you know what? We shouldn't be a document management solution. There's really good ones in Office 365 and Google Drive. And let's get our customers to store their policies there so they can edit it and their teams can work on it and they can share it with whomever they want to. And we will integrate and pull those policies as evidence directly from those systems. But you can use any file across the entire drive that you want to pull. That's a mobile tower, right? When we said, hey, we want to unlock AWS, we said, let's do any file on any S3 bucket. So if you're like, hey, I want this log, or I wrote a piece of code that drops down this information to this hard drive every once in a while, you decide where it is and you go collect it. And now we're building things that everyone can use. And it put us a little behind you know, my sales team was like, hey, Justin, we're getting beat up a little bit around this issue with all these logos. And I was like, guys, hang in there. We're coming with a better product, a better value, I promise. And now it's actually really singing. And we've increased the integrations by, I think, like 30, 40% just in the last two quarters, because we have a much more robust, valuable feature for it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that anecdote. And it makes such a lot of sense not go the obvious route to solve things, but yeah, explore different alternatives. You know, to your point, when you're feeling stuck, it may be for a good reason. Don't just be banging your head against the wall, right? Like you've got to figure out another way around the problem sometimes. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. Well, talking about uh, problems, I, mean, I think I already talked about like the resilience example of Jeff Jonas, but you started in February 2020, sort of like three or four weeks before the world shut down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A very interesting moment to start. Did that help you? Like, what have you learned from this period? And also kind of in relation to other startups that you've started. Yeah. You know, if you had asked me, before the pandemic, what I was most excited about, about starting StrikeGraph, it was about working with the team every day in the office. I really do enjoy people a lot. I love the teamwork. I like to say software development is a team sport. We do it together. And so that was something I was super excited about. But also any company, you know, companies are kind of like jello in the mold. You know, they kind of fill the environment around them. You have some control over that. But there are other macro issues around you that you're just going to have to deal with. And that's the nature of the thing. So the trick is to take advantage of it. A couple of things that I've learned in the pandemic is when I started the company, I thought there was the mission for StrikeGraph. I wanted it to be really simple and easy to grasp. It's twofold. Immediate and apparent value to customers. 
I want that when they spend a dollar with us, they're like, that was a valuable dollar spent. I'm really glad that I'm working with StrikeCraft. And we don't always deliver on that, but we always strive for it. And I want us always to think about it. Why is this valuable to the customer? The second thing is that we need to take care of our employees. It might seem that those two things go head to head, but in truth, they lift each other up. When we are taking care of our employees, they are more apt to be able to consider the value to the customer in their work. And so in a global pandemic, I said, hey, we got to take care of our employees. We are going to have to be a remote first workforce. And we just need to design our culture around it. And I think that care for employees has come through by not forcing them into environments that make them uncomfortable. Even though I might love to see everybody every day, it's an emotional juice for me. I get excited about it. One thing that I have learned about this remote first situation is I've had a lot of companies in the past or teams that I've managed where we had a core team in the office and some remote workers. And always it was a struggle for the remote workers to be as engaged as they possibly could. And I think what I've learned having a remote first company is it's actually works pretty good if everybody is in the same exact situation. So because we're all remote, we all have to deal with the challenges of being remote. And therefore, we all live with a little more empathy for each other and those challenges and engaging each other. Yeah. And so it's worked out really good for us. We're just at about 50 employees at this point. And, you know, we've been growing like crazy. The team's delivering well. And I'm not going to screw with something that's working really good. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, just before we started the call, you were talking about, yeah, having to deal with macro headwinds. Also, maybe in earlier parts of your career, I imagine a couple. What have you learned from that? Well, I love starting a company in chaotic times. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So one business I started, I started it in like 99, 2000, just in the middle of the dot-com bust. And of course, I had just quit my day job, you know, to try and do something full-time. It was a little terrifying. And I was like, man, the whole economy seems to be going sideways and I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But what I found is that as the economy kind of came back together, we were taking advantage of that restitching and opportunity. And so I do actually think that if you're really smart about the value you're providing, if you don't abuse investor dollars as a revenue stream and focus on good unit economics, you know, times like this is a great time to build a company. And I think even some of the economic headwinds that we have today are playing in our favor because we have focused on great unit economics. We have an exceptional solution in the marketplace that has really been thought about carefully and developed with a great team around it. And now we're prepared to scale as even, you know, in the last six months, we see Folks coming back and saying, hey, I want to securitize my revenue. It's really critical that we start to pay attention to that. And getting these types of certifications in place is how we make sure that we do that. Very interesting. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, there's a couple of things that we focus on from a unit economics perspective. And they shift as you mature as an organization a little bit, but some are critical. One is growth of revenue. That's really what investors focused on almost and everyone else to the detriment of everything else. You know, it's great that you are doing a billion dollars in revenue. If it is costing you more money than it is to bring it in, then that's a real challenge. 
So the next thing that we focus on is gross margin. And StrikeGraph is focused on gross margin from the very beginning. Not because we had great gross margin in the beginning, but because we wanted to track it from a baseline to where we were going to go, because that's part of our story. We're chewing up services, businesses, by essentially automating it with code. And so that's really critical for us. Another unit metric that has been really valuable for us is security for an organization is a journey. You know, they're going to start really early with some basic things. And over time, as they mature, it's more and more valuable for them to spend more money on it. So we track a unit economic called net revenue retention, which is is essentially saying how much upgrade motion do we have through our product? I'm really proud of that one. So I'm happy to share that. Like last year, we had 115% net revenue retention which has been phenomenal. So we have really good product-led growth in our solution. And I think those are three that were really critical to us to pay close attention to. There's certainly your cash runway, which we're careful with, and a number of other ones. Like one of the things you want to start, we're starting to look at is what scales exponentially and what scales linearly. So is the number of account executives we have tied directly to the number of deals we can close or there is a way, is there a way to break that relationship? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very good one. And then to focus on the ones that, of course, that have the exponential opportunity there. That's right. Because our investors are looking for us to, you know, 3x the business. I mean, in the second year we were in business, we had a 15x increase in business. That's not too unusual for a high growth startup because yeah. you started out very small. But this exactly. year we'll 3x the business and next year we'll 3x the business again pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great growth and it's sustainable as well. And yeah, I mean, if you look on the right metrics, unit metrics, you come a long way. Did anything during the pandemic change how you were looking at what is the most valuable problem to solve? I mean, not too much because every company is concerned with their revenue. <laughs> so True. I think that's right. And we didn't want to be a security company. We wanted to be a revenue company. You know, our goal was to say, close deals faster with more confidence. And if we can shorten your time to close by 50 to 75%, you can imagine the amount of efficiency that an organization gets, you know, in revenue acquisition quarter over quarter. There are startups that I've worked at that that simple change would have saved us. We would have been a market leader. And so... Just that particular modification, getting trust quickly with your buyers so that you can get the check in the door is what we started focusing on. And it's a very resilient value prop, no matter what's happening with the economy. Because if you're a business and you're finding that you have economic headwinds and you're like, maybe we should cut some cost. The other thing that you always are looking at is like, but can I increase my revenue? I'd much rather increase my revenue. You know, and so you only cut so much. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so we love focusing on that side of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Become mission critical almost in those type of periods. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to what a couple of stories I've heard in other other areas. I mean, I talked about my book a little bit. I wrote a book, The Remarkable Effect, which is about the 10 traits that define those software companies that we start talking about and keep talking about from the experience that you've got over time. What do you believe are must-have traits to embed in your company to achieve that? Yeah, I think we have to have a deep transparency between the teams on what their contributions are. And so we use, you know, in the pandemic, what we've used to create that contract is our budget. 
And so we have a very team centric, our leadership team and our management team spends a lot of time planning our annualized budget every year. And a lot of it is like, hey, if I sales bring in this much work, how many customer success people do we need by when? And so it's a detailed effort. It's always a speculation, right? It's always a projection. So something's not right in it for sure. But it's an important way of us creating a contract with the team, with each other about what our expected contributions are and creating a metric-driven organization, which I think has been really critical for a remote first organization to be a little bit more about the metrics. I'm a very like qualitative, touchy-feely manager too often sometimes, and it has made me a better CEO to be like, hey, these are the things we need to deliver from a sales perspective, from a product perspective, from a customer success perspective, from an operations perspective, for us to be successful in our goals at our company. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Now, last question. From all the wisdom that you've gained being a CEO of many different companies, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you would share with other CEOs, like aspiring CEOs? Yeah, maybe I'll talk about culture and team building a little bit. Okay. One thing that I don't recommend is hiring the absolute most experienced person in the job you're trying to hire for. And I realize that there are deep experts in fields that are very smart, but also they sometimes struggle to grow. And what I do, what I love to do is find teammates that are prepared to grow with our company as it grows. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I recommend doing is thinking more dynamically about the person that you may hire and the role that they are playing, because both are going to change. I know you wrote a job description. That's what you think it will be like. That's what it, you think it's like today. It's, yeah. you know, be willing to make those modifications. And so we have worked really hard to build a culture of learning and growth inside of our organization. And that has allowed us to not only grow our company, but grow our people along with it. And so as the company grows, my leadership team, my management team, our teammates, they grow as well. And I'll give you a perfect example. I had an administrative assistant that was supporting me in my work, talented woman. We were really glad to have her on board and she helped save a lot of time for me. She expressed an interest in becoming a penetration tester on our team. It's one of the solutions that we provide for our customers is the trust asset. And as hard as it was to let her go, as much as she was very helpful, that is our culture. We hired her to give her the opportunity to grow into a more powerful role. And it has allowed us to expand that particular solutions capability. And just last week, she had the opportunity to present her first penetration test for myself and the penetration testing team. And there's nothing more joyful for me. This is my emotional juice, right? To be like, I've seen this person's journey. I'm so proud that we created a space where that was possible. And so from the do and the don't perspective, when I think about culture, just don't think statically about the job and don't think statically about if I don't hire the absolute smartest person in this space, I won't win. That's not the way it works. Hire the person that is ready to grow and grow the role. That is really where you need to focus. Yeah, exactly. Especially in startup time. But I mean, I can also see this same thing in larger companies, but wise advice. Thank you. But this was inspiring. I thank you for being so open about the journey that you've been through and the wisdom that you've put on the table here today. 
Where can people go to find out more about your company or to say hi to you? Yeah. So strikegraph.com is a great place to learn about the company. And if you have any questions about compliance, it can be complex at times. Our chat window there on the website is staffed with experts all the time. And we're happy to schedule a demo of our solution and share how it works. We're very proud of it. And we think it is really the best solution in the marketplace to solve the problem that our customers are going after. For me personally, the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I'm getting old and it's the only social media outlet I have left. Uh, my email inbox is inundated with spam these days, and but I do pay attention to my LinkedIn account and I always look forward to connecting with folks. Yeah. Perfect. Well, this was clear. Thanks for this. Good luck on the journey. It's already impressive what you've achieved in, in such a short time. You know, the revenue traction that you've gained, the growth in the company, and specifically in a pretty tough domain, I would say. Like you say, it's loaded with, it, first of all, it has already a lot of revenue going in there or like spend going in there. Yeah. But competition is fierce, particularly from the consultancy side. Yeah. I like the journey that you're on and the mission that you're on to kind of stop this uh, from going on forever. Thanks, Tom, for having me today. It's a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Same for me. Thank you. And this ends the conversation with Justin. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Justin Beals, co-founder and CEO of StrikeGraph. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.